He is risen. risen You just can't say it too many times today. Hey, let's all stand right now. We're going to honor God's word. We're going to read today from John's gospel. If you are new to Seeds Church, this is something that we do week in and week out, and it's not something that's unique to Seeds Church. Many churches and believers around the world, when they read the text here, they stand to honor God's word. And one of the things that we also do is, at the end of the reading of this passage, we say, this is the word of the Lord, and then we respond, thanks be to God. And so, let's try that real quickly. I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord, and you're going to say, right. And so, We're reminding the Lord how thankful we are for his word, and we're reminding ourselves to be thankful for it as well because it's life-changing, and it's, it's the bread of life to us, right? So let's read. John chapter 20, starting in verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, uh, I'm sorry, today I'm going to read aloud to you, and you just listen. This is a lengthy passage, but... Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. Now, we, um, we make the safe assumption here that the other disciple, the one that Jesus loved, is John. So he's the one writing this gospel, but he never actually mentions himself by name. So this is how he refers to himself, the one that Jesus loved which I always think that's great. And so Mary said to the disciples, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. So Peter and the other disciple, John, they started running for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him And went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. But they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now back to Mary. Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. And at this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it are you looking for? Thinking that he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. 
Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that, she, that he had said these things to her. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. If you got a letter in the mail from a law firm, some of you got very nervous just when I said that. I have gotten letters in the mail from a law firm. If you got a letter in the mail from a law firm and it's on very official letterhead, you know, it's, it's not cheap paper, it's nice paper. The, the, you know, there's like an actual signature drawn with a pen, not just printed by a computer. And this letter said that you had some distant relative that you never even knew of, but they had died and they had left you millions and millions of dollars. It's likely you would be a little skeptical, right? I mean, you've never heard of this um, relative before, don't know anything about this. And this didn't like just come to you like in your you know Facebook Messenger inbox. It wasn't emailed to you. You didn't get like a spam risk phone call. You guys get those before it says spam risk. I'm like, click, not answering that. And it's likely that you're still to be skeptical because it didn't come through those things, even though it's on this official letterhead. But you would still look into it. You would still investigate it. Why? Because the offer is too good to not check it out, right? Like, I'm at least going to email back this lawyer. I'm at least going to call the number that's on the letterhead and, and find out what's going on. I'm at least going to maybe drive to his office and, and investigate this a little bit more. Why? Because it's millions upon millions of dollars. I'm a little skeptical, but I'm going to investigate it. I'm going to check it out. And the resurrection of Jesus can be like that too. In a sense that some people can be skeptical about it. But the offer of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it doesn't offer just some kind of vague, immaterial, ethereal afterlife of some sort. It offers you a new body in, in a, resurre- in a, like a, um, a res- new resurrected body in a renewed perfect world with loved ones and in the presence of God. And so I don't care how skeptical you are, it's still too good to not look into it. And there's no better way to do that than this passage that we just read here in John chapter 20. Because it shows us that the resurrection of Jesus offers us something personal, something merciful, and also rational. The resurrection of Jesus offers us these three things, something rational, something merciful and something personal and all of it is wonderful some of you that aren't skeptical and you have done the digging and you have found the evidence you're like yes amen I know some of you are like where are you going with this here's what I mean by rational Mary Magdalene she finds the tomb empty right she runs to tell the disciples she tells Peter and John Peter and John start running to the tomb it's funny that that John is intentional about making mention that Peter started before him. He got a head start, but John outran him and caught up. You know, he reached the tomb first. That He's the loved one, and he runs faster. You know, <laughs> I'm the disciple Jesus loved, and I'm really fast. 
He gets to the tomb. He sees the linens lying there, but he doesn't go in. Peter's a little bit more bold. He's slower, but he's bolder. He gets to the tomb, and he just goes straight in. He's huffing and puffing. You know, he came in second place. But he gets in there, and he looks, and he sees the linens lying there. And the Greek word that's used there when it says that he saw the linens lying there, it's not the normal Greek word blepo that we would use for, like, seeing with our eyes, vision with our eyes. It's the Greek word thiero, which is where we get the word theorize. And, and, and so what that means is, the arrow means it means to observe something intently, looking for an explanation, which essentially is rationality. You're looking for evidence, and you're thinking. The way it's described here, it shows that, that Peter was thinking, and we might could put ourselves in Peter's shoes in this moment. What could he have been thinking? Wait a second. Their first thought was not that Jesus was resurrected. They're they're wondering what's going on here. And and just imagine, just just picture with me for a second. Have you ever lost something at home before that you knew where you put it? Like, it's like they didn't misplace Jesus' body. We know it went in the tomb. It was wrapped in these linens with the expensive spices, laid in the tomb, stone rolled in front of it, guarded by Roman soldiers, with their, their, like guarded with their lives, right? They didn't misplace Jesus' body. And so you, you have something at home. You know you've put it here. I know beyond a shadow of a doubt I left this here on this table. And you come back and it is not there. What happened to it? Your wife put it in a drawer, guys. She does not know which drawer she put it in. But she put it in a drawer, even though you left it on the table for 45 seconds. So Peter's like, Peter's like, what's going on here? I mean, there were things such such things as grave robbers. But he's thinking, grave robbers, why would they come in and take Jesus' body? And if they did, why did they unwrap it from all like the expensive linens with the expensive spices that kept the body from stinking up. Why would they have done that? This doesn't make sense. That dog won't hunt. And then maybe, maybe Peter thinks, well, what if some of the other disciples had a plan and they came and took Jesus' body, but why would they unwrap his body and unwrap the linens off of his body and take his body away naked? Why would they do that? It would be dishonorable. What, what's going on? He's thinking. He's reasoning. Why does this matter? Why does rationale matter? Why does thinking and reasoning matter? I think sometimes in our culture, Christians get a bad rap, and people look at Christians and they think, well, if you're going to be a Christian today, you've got to check your thinking and your reasoning at the door. And just believe. You've got to check your intellect at the door, and it's just a heart thing. And, hey, you know, it's just like some people, they're just more rational, and they think about things, and they look for evidence and proof of things. But Christians, not so much. They're just people who, who decide to believe. But that's not, the, that's not the case, guys. We're not supposed to check our thinking and reasoning at the door. 
We're not supposed to say, uh, intellect, that's not for me. It's just heart for me. It, it's true that it took a great deal of evidence and proof for the disciples to believe. And that's, I mean, Thomas gets a bad rap. But why? Because he didn't have the same amount of evidence that the other guys had yet. That's how the Christian faith really ought to work sometimes. Not that we should need to go around doubting, but it's, it's that if, if our Christian faith hasn't been worked over with thinking and reasoning, oftentimes it will not stand to the pressures that this world will bring to us. We do not need to disengage our intellect. This is the exact, this reason right here is the exact reason why on Saturday, April 29th, you heard this in Seeds News, why we're having an event for our young adults to equip them with some thinking and reasoning so that their faith will be strengthened and not deconstructed. You might say, well, J.D., Christian faith is far more than just thinking and reasoning. Of course it is. Yes, certainly, of course, it's more than thinking and reasoning, but it's not less than that either. Some, see, some people say, well, they had evidence. They were there to do the investigation. What do we have? All we have is their word. Well, we have evidence too. There's actually quite a bit of evidence. There's enough evidence for us to investigate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it would take an entire semester of a college course. So I hope you guys are comfortable right now. We're going to be here for a while. We can hold off the egg hunt for a little bit later. I'm just kidding. There's a lot of evidence, but we're just going to talk about two things today. The first thing is this. The first piece of evidence is Mary Magdalene herself. There's the second century Greek philosopher named Celsus. Celsus hated Christianity. He's one of the first people to write an argument against Christianity. And one of the main points of his argument against Christianity was Mary Magdalene. Here's what I mean by this. I'm going to read you this quote from Celsus, Greek philosopher from the second century. Okay, these are his words, not mine. So are you ready? How can anyone expect a rational man to believe the testimony of a hysterical female? My wife's on the front row. Those are his words, not mine. How could he say this? Maybe it's because he never got married. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if he was married or not. But we do know this. During this time period, the culture was very misogynistic. And so it was like, you know, why would we listen to the story of just a woman? Because women's status, they're just incredibly low. But here's the deal. Every single one of the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all of them record that the first people to see the resurrected Jesus were women. So at first glance, if you look at Celsus' argument, it's completely expected, right? 
Because at the time, in that culture, it's the Achilles heel to, to the Jesus revolution. It's, it's, it's a, the Achilles heel to the Christian movement. How, you know, it's like everybody said, well, how can you expect us to believe this if women were the first witnesses to this? But let's engage thinking and reasoning for a second. It's not the Achilles heel. Why? Because historians say if you were to make up a story and try to get people to believe this, you would have never said, well, women were the first ones who saw this. Right? Doesn't that make sense? If you were trying to perpetuate a story, and if women were on the lowest rung of the social ladder, why would you make up a story that way? The only plausible reason that the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the only reason why they would say that women were the first ones to see the resurrected Jesus is because they were. Otherwise, it wouldn't make any sense to make up a story like that, right? Paul's letter, his first letter to the Corinthian church, it's a public document. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul writes about the resurrection of Jesus, and he says that hundreds of people saw Jesus after he was resurrected. Hundreds and hundreds, scores of times. And in one particular instance, 500 people saw Jesus at the same time. And then Peter said, here are their names. Not Peter, I'm sorry, Paul. Paul said, here are their names. Here's where they live. Here's the towns that they live in. Go talk to them and ask them the questions about this. Eyewitness accounts. And this is public knowledge that Paul is saying this in a public document. Go talk to them, question them. So this is the first piece of evidence that we have for the resurrection. There's hundreds and hundreds of people who saw the resurrected Jesus giving eyewitness testimony to this fact. And they weren't all his disciples. Here's another fact or piece of evidence. These were people whose lives were changed immediately, forever. Some of us have had encounters in our lives where we think we've had a life-changing experience, but then life kind of goes back to what it was before. But some of us have had experiences that have changed our lives, and our lives really will never be the same. And that's what happened to these people. Do you guys like satire? Some of you... Your stomach just kind of went in a knot. I was like, what is he going to say next? I'm not sure. Listen, it's okay. Relax. Breathe. I like satire a lot. I like it a lot. Um, I like um, sarcasm. Sarcasm. And, and here's why I like it, because... If it's used well, if it's executed well, it can really clearly make a point. It can really point to the truth of a matter, you know, and, and say, hey, look at this. Wow, wow, that's very evident. I want to give you an example. What if Jesus' resurrection was a hoax? What if the disciples somehow, through just a couple of days having to be able to plan this, 
were able to actually execute this master plan and then convince hundreds and hundreds of people to follow along with the charade of the whole thing. What if? Now, watch this. Are we all here? I need 100% participation for this to work. Yeah, everyone's here. All 12, 11, 11 of us. Well, what's the plan? Well, as you know, Jesus is dead. But stick with me, stick with me, okay? Stick with me. I have a plan. We are going to steal his body. Okay, okay, I'm tracking with you. What's next? And then we're going to tell the whole world that he rose from the dead. Oh, oh you know I'm in. I love it already. <laughs> all right, classic, classic. Then what? And then we're all going to get brutally murdered. Oh! <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Come again, come again. Could you go over that last part real, real quick? Oh, what? We get murdered. What's the problem? Uh, I, I like it. <laughs> I like it. I mean, don't, don't get me wrong, Pete. I love me a good hoax as much as the next guy, right? <laughs> right? Uh, uh, what's in it for us? Do we all get riches, fame, and fortune first, right? No, no, get this. You're going to be hated, hated. persecuted, and reviled for the rest of your life! Oh! Fellas, fellas, uh, look, uh, I, I, I gotta be missing something here, right? <laughs> okay? I mean, why on earth would we do this? Can, can we start over? Oh, okay. We'll start from the beginning. Everybody, for John, yeah. your beloved disciple. So, okay. We go down to Jesus' tomb. I, sounds good. This yes. is really yes. easy. Then? We pay off the Roman soldiers that are guarding the tomb with their lives. Why, why would they do that? Then we somehow roll away the big stone that's in front of the tomb. Obviously, you have to move the rock first. Yeah. And then we steal his body. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I guess. Then we tell the whole world that he rose from the dead and we get brutally murdered for our troubles. <laughs> Epic break, bro. Peter, you rock. Okay, guys, okay, and then what? Then we all get killed. Come on. When do we see ourselves become exalted and praised? That's just it. You don't! What, what is happening? Anyone hear what I'm saying? This is the most idiotic plan of all time. Chill out, bro. I mean, do I really have to explain the joke to you? It's that we lie about Jesus' resurrection, and then we all die. Oh! How am I supposed to chill out when our heads are getting cut off? Or worse, what is wrong with you guys? Thomas, okay, look, back me up here. I know you can't be cool with all this. I know you gotta have some doubts. Come on. Doubts? I will never have any doubts Okay, okay, you guys have officially lost it, okay? I, I am out of here. I, I'd rather be exiled to a deserted island than spend another minute with you wackos. Have I got some good news for you? 
It makes a point, right? I like satire. These are people whose lives were changed overnight. They, they thought their lives had been changed just by spending, you know, time with Jesus, following him for three years. Yes, they had. But after the resurrection, it was next level. Because they had. They had lived with Jesus for, for three years. They had heard him teach. They sat under his teachings. They had watched him and saw him perform signs and wonders and miracles. They saw that he is resurrected. They knew that they hadn't hallucinated it. And then Jesus stayed on earth with them for 40 days, continuing to teach them before he ascended to heaven. And it changed them forever. No one could take the resurrection from them. No one could take all of of what Jesus had done and the implications of the resurrection from them. No matter if it meant they were going to become outcasts of society. No matter if it meant persecution and torture and being brutally murdered. Their lives were changed forever. There was a a great fire that swept through Rome, damaged much of Rome. Nero said, you know what we'll do? Uh, Looking for somebody to blame, I need a scapegoat, let's blame the Christians. And so he orders Peter to be sentenced to death by crucifixion. You know, in that moment, Peter could have been like, just kidding, guys, this whole Jesus thing the ultimate king of the world, the whole resurrection, the whole thing was a joke. It was a hoax. I'm out. No need to crucify me. But he didn't do that. He stuck to his guns. Why? Because this was real. And instead of of Jesus, or excuse me, instead of Peter backing out and saying, no, 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 guys, no need to crucify me, this is Peter's response. He said, I don't deserve to be crucified and to, and to die in the same manner of my Lord. If you're going to crucify me, do it upside down. So they did. We have these pieces of evidence, and there's a lot more. We have eyewitness testimony. And we have these people's lives that were changed forever, and no one could convince them otherwise because they knew what they had experienced was true. There's a lot more evidence out there. Go find it. Go think about it. Jesus' resurrection, it offers us something rational, and it also offers us something merciful, which is probably more comforting, comforting to us today. Look at how gentle Jesus is with Mary. She's so passionate about Jesus. She's weeping. Where did they take his body? And she obviously loves him, and yet her understanding of Jesus is too small. Why? Because she's looking for a dead Jesus. She's looking for human Jesus. Because she's looking for a Jesus that fits into the box that she's placed him in, fits him into the box of her natural worldview. Her categories for Jesus were that this guy is a wonderful rabbi and teacher. He's a godly man, a prophet. 
a miracle worker, but her natural categories were keeping Jesus too small. So what did Jesus do? He revealed himself to her. She had heard Jesus say that he was the light of the world. She had heard Jesus say that he was going to come back and judge the world. She had heard Jesus say that he would die and rise again. She had heard all that, but it still didn't click. As grand as her devotion was to Jesus, and as much as she knew him and loved him, her estimate of him was still far too small. And so Jesus has to reveal himself to her. How does he do it? I mean, he could do it like a superhero. I mean, he is the ultimate king of the universe, right? He could, like, swoop down and, like, save a jet airliner that's about to crash into a stadium full of people in, on, you know, live global television in front of millions and billions of people. But that's not what he does. It's not how he does it. What does he do? He asks Mary, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Behold the gentleness of Jesus. He is the risen king. Like we said last week on Palm Sunday, remember that we said that, you know, son of David, what they were all, the crowds were crying out as he was coming into Jerusalem. It was a code word, right? It was a code word for the ultimate king of the world, and he is. He is the ultimate king of the world, and he has come once, and he is coming again, but he comes to you. And when he comes to you, he comes as the gentle king. The way that the resurrected Jesus meets Mary, in, in some way, it's a summary of, of the whole message of the Bible. Why? Because of this. Because as much as she knew him, as much as she loved him, she never would have found him if he hadn't found her first. It's the same, it's the same for me. It's the same for you. She was looking for him, but she was looking for a dead Jesus. She was looking for a Jesus that fit within her box. She never would have found him unless he found her first, even though she was looking. He finds you first. He seeks you. You guys, human faith is impossible. Humanly speaking, faith is is impossible. But maybe you've heard this. Maybe you've read this somewhere. With God, all things are possible. Anything is possible when Jesus breaks through and he opens your eyes. Even your reasoning and your thinking will spin its wheels unless he helps you with it. Yes. We, we need to engage our intellect. But the Christian faith is not just thinking and reasoning. We have to understand that he came and he found us. 
In some ways, the account of the resurrected Jesus meeting Mary, it's a summary of the message of the whole Bible. And what is is that? It's that he has to reveal himself to you. Why? Because your heart is too small. Your mind is too small. Your background, your, your upbringing, your dysfunctional family, that you live in this culture and in this time in history. that you grew up on that side of the train tracks, that this was your education. All of these things in this natural carnal world are trying to keep Jesus too small. It's like, I see Jesus, but he can only be this big. And only Jesus coming to us can burst those categories. And when he comes to us, he comes gently. Maybe the most telling thing about this passage that tells us that Jesus saves by grace, which is the message of the Bible, is the fact that he chooses her to be the very first messenger to the world. She's the very first person to meet the risen Christ. And remember we talked last week about how deliberate Jesus is? Like the the whole like, you know, Palm Sunday thing wasn't just like an accident. Jesus was very deliberate. He's very much on purpose. He orchestrated it. And he orchestrated that she would be the very first person to see him resurrected. And he sees her and he tells her, now you go and be my messenger. Do you know who she was? Mary Magdalene, do you know who she was? Paul, the Apostle Paul says that he was the chief of all sinners. I believe if Mary Magdalene were here with us, she would say, I'm tied. I'm tied with Paul. (laughs) She was a prostitute. She was a whore. And she had, uh, Luke chapter 8 tells us that she had seven demons that Jesus cast out of her. What does that mean? Mark chapter 5 gives us a picture of what a demoniac might look like. These are people who wandered around half naked, talking to themselves, just crying out. People who were usually homeless, they're social outcasts. And Jesus chooses her. First of all, he chooses a woman who, at the time, women are on the lowest rung of the social ladder. He chooses her a reformed mental patient who had been previously tormented by demons, not someone who was like the pillar of the community. He chose her, and he appoints her, and he says to her, you are my messenger. Jesus is saying, hey, I don't save on the basis of pedigree or moral attainment. I I, I don't save you by your work. I save you by my work. I don't save people who think that they're strong. I save people who know that they're weak. I don't save people who think they've never done anything wrong. I save people who know that they are depraved and they need a Savior. Behold, the mercy, the grace of Jesus Christ. That was offered, the the, the offering was made to Mary, but the offering is made to you today as well. 
And if all Jesus ever did was just save us, it would be sufficient. How many of you were here at our Seder meal on Wednesday night? We observed the Passover on Wednesday night here, and we walked through. uh, Joshua did a great job of just kind of walking us through all of the elements in the, in the meal and how they point to Jesus as Messiah. And one of the things, we came to a section in the meal where we would say, if all God ever did was blank, X, Y, Z, it would have been enough. And if, but he did more than that. If all he ever did was this, it would have been enough. It would have been sufficient, right? And we kept repeating that over and over. And the truth is this. If, God, if all ever Jesus did was just save us by grace, it would have been sufficient. But he didn't stop there. He gives himself to us. There's a lot of things that Jesus could have said to Mary. And in a way, Jesus shows us how he relates to us. How does he reveal himself to Mary at the tomb? She's like, where is he? You know, she thinks he's the gardener. He's just like, hey, Mary, it's me. It's Jesus. Pulls off the cloak, you know, pulls off the hood. Ta-da! That's not what he does. Why doesn't he do it that way? I mean, it would be far cooler, you know. Mary's like, I don't know where he is. You know, she's got a case of mistaken identity. And he doesn't, he doesn't surprise her. Hey, it's me, this big reveal. Do you know what he really says? In a way... He doesn't say it's me, but in a way he says this. He says, it's you. Right? Because what did did we read in in the text? What did he say? He said, Mary. He calls her by name. The resurrection of Jesus, it offers you something rational and merciful, but something incredibly personal. Mary, Jamie, Scott, Pulitzer Prize-winning novelist Annie Dillard. She wrote this in her book, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. She said, I had been my whole life a bell, and I never knew it until at the moment I was lifted and struck. That's what Jesus was doing with Mary. In our modern Western culture, we are obsessed with identity. Everyone's trying to find out who they are. And here's the cultural narrative. Here's what the culture says. Here's how to be in pursuit of your personal identity. Look inside you and figure out who you are or decide who you want to be. And then after you've, you've formed that opinion, then you now assert that and you present that to the rest of the world. And it doesn't matter what anybody else says. But that approach doesn't really work on a number of levels. One of, the way, one of the reasons it doesn't work 
even though that's the cultural narrative, it, the reason it doesn't work is because we're social beings that are never going to have a secure identity just by looking inside of ourselves, deciding who we're going to be, and asserting it. And I tell you, we are in a crisis in this today. We're in an absolute crisis in this today, in the search for our personal identity. But the way that you come to having a secure identity is that someone who adores you finds you, and you realize, man, I adore them. They adore me. Someone that you respect respects you. Someone that you love loves you. And what Jesus is saying, he says, I am the ultimate king of the world. And Mary, I love you. I love you personally, and I love you expensively, and I love you eternally. He reveals himself to her, and at the same time, he reveals her to herself. What Jesus was conveying was, hey, Mary, I, ultimate king of the world, I love you. I'm not just the dead founder of an ethical religion that if you just jump through all the right hoops and obey all the right set of rules, then you'll get to know me. That's not how it works. I am the living Savior, and you can know me. And then he says this to her. He says, don't hold on to me. Why, why did he say that? There's a couple different ways we could go with that that are all good. But why does he say that? Because... Because I'm about to leave. But you don't want to hold on to me because you're afraid to lose me. Because I am going to go to heaven, but I'm going to send my Holy Spirit. And when I send my Holy Spirit, you're going to actually have me in a way that you can't even have me now. You're going to have me in a way that no one can ever remove me from you. Even if they throw you into prison and torture you and put you in the darkest dungeon and crucify you upside down, we will still be together. Yeah. The more that you know me and love me as the risen Savior, as the risen Lord, and the more that you experience my love, the more you find out who I am, the more, who, the more you'll find out who I've created you to be. I'm telling you, this world is in a crisis trying to figure out who am I, personal identity. And I'm going to tell you guys this, personal identity is an entirely overrated. It's the great lie of our culture and of our time and the enemy today. The enemy today just is like, is telling everybody, just find out who you are. And if you look at how this is playing out in our culture today, it does not take a brilliant mind or the, the greatest social scientist to see that this track only leads down toward narcissism and depravity. Why am I telling you guys this? Because we're supposed to be in the church and we're in the world but not of the world. 
Unfortunately, I said it doesn't take a brilliant social scientist to figure this out. Unfortunately, there are lots of social scientists who haven't figured this out, and they're telling people the message, oh, just look inside yourself and decide who you're going to be. But look at the results. It's heartbreaking. Don't fall in that trap. Listen, I'm not worried about my personal identity. I'm worried about my eternal identity. And I say worried, I mean, that's what I'm concerning myself with. Here's how this works. The wider your view of God becomes, I don't mean like the more inclusive. I mean like the wider the scope, the more that you see him for who he really is, the more in focus that picture becomes and you begin to get a grasp on the person of God, who he really is, his identity, it will overshadow any questions that you have about your own personal identity. In the moment that Mary is weeping outside the tomb, she didn't see that it was Jesus. But when he called her by name, she heard his voice and recognized him for who he was. And my prayer is that today that you would have that same kind of encounter with him and you would hear him calling your name. Jesus' resurrection, it offers you something rational and merciful and personal. Thank you, God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us what we need to know. Which is this, is that your son rose from the dead and that we can know him personally. Not just as a dead prophet or teacher, but as a living savior. Thank you that we can hear his voice speaking to us, calling us by name and giving us his love. Lord, I pray for everybody here today, everyone under the sound of my voice, but more importantly, under the sound of your voice, God, today, that you would give them this great gift. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, I just want to ask you, do you feel the conviction of your sin today? Do you feel the emptiness of being not in relationship with God, not being submitted to him? Do you feel the weight of your sin? Do you feel the need to ask for forgiveness and repent to be saved? If so, you know what that feeling is? That, that feeling is actually the Holy Spirit magnifying Jesus to you, showing you your great need for Jesus. Maybe you're a prodigal. Maybe one, once you actually walked with Jesus. But right now, you're just really kind of living for yourself. But it feels like right now that God's got a hold of your heart. You're like, I need to come home to him. If, if any of this is you and you'd say, I'm ready. I choose to believe the evidence. I choose to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. 
that he died on the cross to pay the penalty for my sin, and he rose from the grave proving that he was the one true living Savior, the Son of God, then I'm just going to invite you to confess Jesus as your Lord today and follow him with the rest of your life. Don't have one of these encounters that we spoke about just a moment ago. You're like, man, that was a life-changing encounter. But then it really wasn't, and your life goes back to the way that it was. Have a life-changing encounter with Jesus today that really will forever change your life. This is not about just showing up to church a couple of times of the year just to acknowledge that, okay, I just acknowledge Jesus. No, this is an all-in, all-the-time kind of thing where... You're like, no, I'm, I'm going to follow him. I'm gonna, for the rest of my life, I'm going to be dedicated to following Jesus. If that's you today, I just invite you to just surrender your life to him today and, and invite you to just have his resurrection power meet you and resurrect the dead in your life. But the first thing is, is that you have to admit is the dead in your life. You're dead to your, you're dead in sin. But Jesus wants to give you new life. And if this is who you are today in this, in this place, I want to invite you to pray with me. And if you're a believer in this place, I want you to pray now for those who are about to make this confession and about to call upon the name of Jesus. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray and I'm going to say some words, but I want you, if this is, if you're making this commitment to, to follow Jesus, you put the meaning behind the words that I'm praying. And you pray with me. Heavenly Father, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God who died for me on the cross. And you raised him from the dead, and he is alive forevermore. I repent of my sins. Lord, forgive me and cleanse me. Jesus, sit on the throne of my life. I say now that you are in charge of my life. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for accepting me. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for giving me eternal life. From this day forward, I belong to you.